0: All right, we are in Daniel 4. We are finishing Daniel 4 this morning. Napoleon was a prideful man. On the morning of the battle at Waterloo, he spoke to his commanding officer and reviewed the strategic maneuvers for the battle. He described where he wanted the different parts of his army to be stationed. And then he made this statement. He said, at the end of this day... England will be at the feet of France, and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. This commanding officer heard that and responded, Sir, sir, we must not forget that man proposes and God disposes. Being the arrogant little man he was, he was just five feet and two inches, he responded, I want you to understand, sir, that Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. The novelist Victor described what happened next. He said, from that moment on, Waterloo was lost. God sent rain and hail so that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as he had planned. And on the night of that battle, it was Napoleon who was the prisoner of Wellington, and France was at the feet of England. Because man proposes and God disposes. Napoleon's problem was hubris. Hubris, if that is an unfamiliar word, hubris is defined as exaggerated pride and overinflated self confidence. Exaggerated pride and overinflated self confidence. Napoleon's hubris cost him that battle, and from a biblical perspective that was predictable. The first sin ever committed was hubris and pride. It was the sin that started all other sins. It was the foundational sin. Theologians believe Satan's original name was Lucifer. There is no specific verse that states that Satan originated as Lucifer, but a combination of verses seem to teach that. Lucifer might have been the most elite, angel-like creature in heaven, but Lucifer wanted more than that. He wanted God's throne. He wanted God's position as the ultimate sovereign ruler of this universe. So he became an insurrectionist and organized a coup against God. He convinced one third of the angel population to join him in that attempt. But that overthrow wasn't successful. He and his angels together were then expelled from heaven as residents. Those angels are now called fallen angels, unfaithful angels or more often, demons. And those demons saturate the atmosphere and harass people on earth. Isaiah the prophet commented on that rebellion in Isaiah 14. Notice verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? Verse 13. For you, Lucifer, have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Probably a reference to angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. Verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God. Notice Lucifer mentions, I will... I, will, five separate times. Those are five prideful statements. Lucifer's prideful attitude was the original sin. Don't misunderstand that. Not the original human sin, just the original sin. The original human sin was committed in the garden. Uh, The first man had acted in disobedience against God's specific instructions about not eating a particular piece of fruit. Eating that forbidden fruit was the first An original human sin. But notice something. Notice that the first human sin was also an extension of pride. Because in eating that fruit, the first human, Mr. Adam, thought he knew better than God. C.S. Lewis called pride, quote, the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the ultimate declaration of independence. It's interesting that the middle letter in the word pride is the letter I. Pride announces, I am self-sufficient. I have everything I need. I can do this. I don't need God's assistance. That is pride. Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 17. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. Notice the first item on that hated list is in verse 17, a crowd look. Proverbs 8 verse 13 begins, the fear of the Lord. Don't misunderstand that phrase. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean we should be afraid of God. Non-Christians are the exception to that statement. Non-Christians should be afraid and terrified of God's predictable judgment. The fear of the Lord means to have an awesome and reverential respect for God. If we have that fear, if we have that awesome and reverential respect for God, then notice, we are going to hate evil and hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 11 verse 2, When pride comes, then comes shame. The Hebrew word translated as shame means public shame and humiliation, embarrassment and disgrace. And pride precedes all that. Proverbs 21, verse 4, A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone, proud in heart, is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none, none will go unpunished. An example of divine punishment and punishment on pride is the prophetic announcement made about ancient Edom. The ancient Edomites were descendants from Esau. That should sound familiar. We mentioned this earlier in our series. The three famous Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, Jacob's twin brother that he ripped off was Esau. Jacob stole his brother's birthright and stole his brother's blessing. Esau's descendants were the Edomites. The captain of Edom was Petra. Petra now located in southwestern Georgia. The Nabataeans were an Arab Bedouin tribe indigenous to that region and had established Petra as a trading post. It was a fortified location situated between high cliffs. And the singular entrance and exit is so narrow that in some spots it is just 10 feet wide. That... Three-fourths of a mile long entrance and exit is now called the sick, spelled S-I-Q, pronounced sick. Petra was easily guardable and almost invulnerable. At one time, 20,000 people inhabited Petra. It was famous for its rock-carved architecture and water conduit system. It is also called the rose-colored city because of the beautiful color of the stone it is carved from. Some people in this congregation, in this room, uh, have been to the site of ancient Petra. uh, And others have seen Petra in movies, such as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Mortal Kombat, The Mummy Returns, Transformers, and others. Jeremiah the prophet made a pronouncement against Edom and Petra. Jeremiah 49, verse 16. Your fierceness has deceived you. The pride of your heart, notice, the pride of your heart, O you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, that's Petra, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I, this is God, will bring you down from there. Verse 17, Edom also shall be an astonishment. Instead of astonishment, some translations read desolation and waste. Desolation, everyone who goes by it will be astonished. The Hebrew word translated as astonished means amazed and amazement. So people that see Petra are going to stare in amazement at how desolate it is. Other nations captured ancient Petra multiple times. And then after the 8th century AD, it was abandoned as a trading center and its stone structures were then used as shelters for nomadic shepherds. Today, the original Petra is in ruins. And Jeremiah was correct. Everyone that sees Petra is amazed and astonished. Petra illustrates that God doesn't tolerate pride. It could be in this life, or the life after this life, but God punishes pride. Pride is an ongoing societal problem. And it's worsening the closer we are to the end of this age. An example of that, Europe has a number of magnificent medieval cathedrals. It's interesting that one characteristic about those cathedrals that stands out strange to the modern mind is that in most cases we don't know In most cases, we do not know who actually designed and constructed them. The architect and builder's names are not engraved on them in some prominent location. One example of that is the Chart Cathedral. Uh, construction, Construction started in 1145 A.D., It was then completed in 1260, and that included a reconstruction after the fire in 1194. It is located about 50 miles southwest of Paris. It was constructed in the French Gothic style. It's beautiful. Notice, that's the exterior, and then this is the interior. And then I understand that some of that stained glass is original more than eight centuries old. It is a magnificent structure. It has been designated as a world heritage site and is considered a masterpiece and the high point of French Gothic art. But the architect of that structure and the stonemasons that built it are unknowns. We don't know who those men were. That's not how modern man rolls. We want as much name recognition as possible. We want our achievements advertised and publicized because we're proud people. But those medieval anonymous achievements started to change after the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, uh, also called the Age of Reason, was an intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated Europe during the 17th and 18th centuries. The Enlightenment had some good parts and some not so good parts. One of the more famous personalities from that period was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Pardon my French, I don't speak the language, I'm sure I butchered it, forgive me. Um, In 1789, Rousseau authored a book called Confessions. He dedicated that book to himself. It reads, quote, To me, to me with the admiration I owe myself. The book opened with these words quote, I have entered upon a performance which is without example, whose accomplishment will have no imitator. I mean to present my fellow mortals with a man in all the integrity of nature, and this man shall be myself. Rousseau stole the title from his book from the famous fourth century theologian and church father Augustine. Augustine's book was also called Confessions. His was different though. He dedicated his publication not to himself but to God. And he wrote, Great Thou Art and Greatly to be Praised. See how far we have come. Let's set up this narrative. Nebuchadnezzar in the first part of Daniel 4 had a nightmarish dream that bothered him and troubled him. Nebuchadnezzar remembered the specifics from this particular dream. He dreamed about an enormous, enormous tree. This tree had large and strong branches. Birds nested in its limbs and animals found shade underneath it. This tree also produced much, much fruit. According to this dream, all of a sudden someone descended from heaven. He was called a watcher in this text, meaning he was probably an angel. This angel descended from heaven and demanded that this tree be cut down, and it was. Its branches were stripped of its leaves, its fruit was scattered, and the birds and animals left. But the stump of that tree was bound with a band of iron and bronze that preserved that tree from continued deterioration. And that meant it was still possible that this tree could be restored and rejuvenated. That was his dream. But none of Nebuchadnezzar's court counselors could interpret that dream, so he called on Daniel. He had total confidence in Daniel's ability to interpret what he had dreamed. Daniel immediately understood that dream. In an instant, God gave him the meaning and essence of that dream, but he hesitated to reveal it to Nebuchadnezzar because it wasn't good, he didn't want to disappoint him, he didn't want to upset him, he knew <laughs> what that dream meant, and that dream was a prophetical announcement pronouncement of judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. This dream was scheduled to transpire over a seven year period, and the interpretation was this, that massive tree from that dream represented Nebuchadnezzar himself. This enormous tree, the focal point of that dream, represented Nebuchadnezzar himself and represented all the greatness Nebuchadnezzar had achieved throughout the Babylonian Empire. The message to Nebuchadnezzar from that dream was that he would be removed, dethroned from his throne as head of that Babylonian Empire. Why would he be removed? Because he would incur a sudden, severe mental disorder where he would imagine himself to be some sort of a beast similar to an ox. He would exist in that mentally confused state for 84 consecutive months until he learned the critical lesson that it is God that rules over all. It is God that is sovereign. It is God that enthrones human rulers. And it is God that dethrones human rulers. The reason all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar is because pride positions oneself above God. God had laid down a basic premise that he would not tolerate a usurper who attempts to rise above him. Isaiah 48, verse 11, and I, God, will not give my glory to another. Nebuchadnezzar represents what happens to any man that tries to do that. To anyone that tries to usurp himself over God. This is a warning to all the shahs, ayatollahs, amines, hitlers, Mussolinis, putins, and all others who want to set up their own prideful, egotistical, self-designed empires. Nebuchadnezzar was the classic example of this important principle. Don't miss this principle. Pride, hubris. Pride results in humiliation. That is the ultimate end of pride. And then humility results in exaltation. That is the ultimate end of humility. That is the big idea of this message. Now, even if this principle doesn't come to fruition in this life, and it most often does, it is guaranteed to transpire after this life. Example, being proudful and resisting Jesus and salvation now results in eternal humiliation in hell. Being humble, admitting our sin, and receiving Jesus and salvation now results in eternal exaltation in heaven. So this principle is applicable now and applicable after this now. Notice the first part of this principle. Pride results in personal humiliation, or rephrased as, he who gets too big for his britches will ultimately be exposed in the end. That is a theological profundity. Take that home, meditate on that. Leonardo da Vinci, a genius among geniuses was the first to conceptualize and produce sketches and plans of a parachute. He created those sketches in his notebook in 1483. But it was all on paper because he never created a prototype of a parachute. The first implemented parachute based on da Vinci's design was from a Croatian inventor named Fausto Varanzio. Fausto Varanzio. He tested his parachute by successfully jumping from the bell tower at St. Mark's Basilica in 1617, four centuries ago. But over time, improvements were made to increase the effect- effectiveness of the parachute. I'm curious, just who in this room has ever jumped out of a plane using a parachute? My son has. Who else? You have Linda Lee? Okay. May. Okay, anybody else? Who's ever jumped out of a plane without a parachute? Anybody know? <laughs> Who in this room would never ever under any condition jump out of a plane with a parachute? Okay, good. I'm not alone. On February 22, 1911, Gaston Herview climbed the Eiffel Tower to test a new form of parachute he had developed. The Eiffel Tower, we understand, is three levels for visitors. The upper level is 906 feet above the ground. It is assumed Gaston climbed to that upper level. He checked with the wind and started the test. His silk parachute filled with air and then floated safely to the ground. But, herve didn't actually make that jump himself. He used one of these test dummies Instead, that weighed about 160 pounds. One man heard about that and felt that experiment was an absolute outrage. Franz Reichel. Franz Reichel was an Austrian tailor who created a parachute of his own. He denounced the use of dummies in experimentation as a sham. So 12 months after that, he arrived at the Eiffel Tower. That is so strange. He arrived at the Eiffel Tower uh, to conduct his own experiment. It's his parachute suit. He posed for pictures and announced, I am so convinced this device will work properly that I will use it and jump myself. It so happened Gaston Herview, the man we just mentioned, was also there and pulled him aside and tried to stop him. Her view explained some of the technical reasons why his parachute was certain to fail. The two men had a much heated discussion for a matter of minutes until Rachel just walked away from him. Modern parachutes use 700 square feet of fabric and should be deployed only above 250 feet. Rai parachute used less than 350 feet, square feet of fabric, and for some strange reason, he deployed it at just 178 feet, pardon me, 87 feet. He had neither the surface area nor the altitude needed to make a successful jump. Her view wasn't the only person who had insisted that his parachute suit wasn't workable. A team of experts had earlier argued that the surface area of the device was too small. He shouldn't attempt to do this. Wrightshell was so stubborn, so full of hubris, so prideful. He not only ignored the experts, he also ignored his own data. He had tested his parachute earlier using dummies, and the dummies crashed. He tested his parachute himself, jumping 30 feet into a haystack, and he crashed he tested his parachute jumping 20 feet without a haystack he crashed and broke his leg you would think something would start to register instead of changing the parachute design though his hubris and pride and stubbornness caused him to hang on even tighter to his bad idea regardless of all the evidence and warning so he jumped Rachel fell for four seconds until he hit the ground at 60 miles per hour, creating a dust of frost and dust and a dent of six inches deep. He died on impact. Because pride precedes humiliation. Pride precedes shame and embarrassment and disgrace and indignity. The first part of this principle is described in Daniel 4, verses 28 through 33. Notice verse 28. All this meaning all this that had been predicted in this dream, just verses earlier. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. All that had been prophesied about Nebuchadnezzar through that nightmarish dream was fulfilled just as Daniel interpreted and just as he said it would. Verse 29, At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Notice that the fulfillment of this dream doesn't happen for another 12 months. After the dream, after Daniel shared the interpretation, nothing happens for another 12 months. Meaning that God exercised extreme patience toward Nebuchadnezzar. He extended to him more than enough time to repent from his sin and change. To smash his pride. But Nebuchadnezzar was stubborn on steroids. He wouldn't budge. Notice his continued and profound arrogance. Verse 30, The king, Nebuchadnezzar, spoke, saying, Is is not this great Babylon that I have built, I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty, People, that is prideful arrogance, this boasting. This man had prideful hubris oozing from his pores. And not unlike Napoleon, he was about to experience humiliation. Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride, this hubris, goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit, haughtiness, goes before a fall. That same verse has been illustrated Countless times in others throughout the biblical record were scheduled soon to meet egotistical King Belshazzar and his fall, Daniel 5. There was the biggest bag of hot air ever in Goliath, 1 Samuel 17. And the bigger they are, the harder they fall. He's an example of that. The rich fool mentioned in Jesus' parable, Luke 12. And then King Herod in Acts 12. Read what happened to him and how he died. (coughs) And on and on and on. Proud men that ended up humiliated. Verse 31. (coughs) While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven. This is from God himself, we assume. A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Nebuchadnezzar had... Heard this earlier prophetical announcement from Daniel. He'd heard what Daniel said about the dream he had had. And notice he did nothing. He changed nothing. There was no repentance. There was no smashing of his pride and hubris. One month passed after that. Nothing happened to him. He's fine. Six months passed and still no judgment. Nothing 11 months passed, and Nebuchadnezzar was probably feeling invincible. And then, after 12 months, all of a sudden, BAM! All that Daniel had predicted would happen, happened in an instant. One moment, Nebuchadnezzar was a bright, handsome, thriving executive and king. His mind was sharp, he had it all together, and then, BAM! His mind snapped, and the next moment, he was reduced to an animal. Verse 32 and they shall drive you this is from God they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field they shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times seven times of seven years shall pass over you until you know that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses verse 33 that very hour I mean it was instantaneous. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar's mind instantly became like that of an animal. This is an unusual psychological delusion. And that delusion is called lycanthropy, lycanthropy three. Someone who suffers from this condition actually thinks he's an animal. And he starts behaving like that animal. Or in our modern, confused, societal vernacular, Nebuchadnezzar identified as an animal. Because we just identify whatever we want to be, right? A biblical scholar named Raymond Harrison recited a personal experience With a modern case similar to that of Nebuchadnezzar. He witnessed this in a British mental hospital in 1946. He said this A great many doctors spend an entire professional career without once encountering an instance of this kind of monomania described in the book of Daniel. This present writer himself therefore considers himself fortunate to have actually observed a clinical case of this condition in that British mental institution. The patient was in his early 20s, who had been hospitalized for about five years. His symptoms were well developed on admission into the hospital, meaning the condition didn't develop after he had been admitted. It was there at his time of admission, and diagnosis was immediate and conclusive. He was of average height and weight, with a good physique, and was in excellent health other than his mind. His mental symptoms included pronounced antisocial tendencies, and because of that, he spent the entire day, from dawn until dusk, outdoors on the grounds of the institution. His daily routine consisted of wandering around the lawns, and it was his custom to pluck up and eat handfuls of grass. An observation was he was seen to discriminate carefully between grass and weeds. Meaning he didn't eat weeds, he ate grass. An attendant told me that the diet of this patient consisted exclusively of grass from those hospital lawns. He never ate institutionalized food with other inmates and his only drink was water. This writer was able to examine him and the only abnormality noted consisted of a lengthening of the hair and a coarse thickened condition of the fingernails. It is believed that without institutional care this patient would have manifested precisely the same physical conditions as those mentioned in Daniel 4 verse 33. Nebuchadnezzar suffered from a form of serious insanity and that humiliating condition, that embarrassing, shameful condition existed as divine judgment on his pride. Now notice the second half of that principle. Being humble results in exaltation. Humbling oneself in an ultimate sense results in a promotion, an advancement in honor and recognition. Now, not a false humility, such as actor Will Smith's personal confession. This is not tongue-in-cheek. He made this statement. We assume he was sincere. He said, there are so many things that are incredible about me. The most amazing is my humility. Anyone that admits to being humble isn't. This second part is described in verses 34 through 37. Verse 34, And at the end of the time, meaning at the end of those 84 months of insanity, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. Notice that. He refocused on heaven, and at that moment, his sensibility returned. My understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Verse 36, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Notice, Nebuchadnezzar regained his mind. He regained his sensibility and proceeded to humble himself, turn from his twisted paganism, turn from his pride and hubris, and turn to the one true God. He had learned through this experience that it is God that rules over rulers. Just after Bill Clinton was inaugurated for a second term as as the President of the United States, he solicited the chaplain of the Senate to share a biblical text, a text he felt could help him govern better. Chaplain Lloyd John Ogilvie was chaplain at that time, former pastor, First Presbyterian Church, Hollywood. Uh, if you've ever heard, he, he died not long ago. Uh, he had an amazing voice. If, if you ever can imagine, what would God sound like? It would sound like John Ogilvie. I mean, just Amazing. wish I had it. I'm having voice problems terrible this morning. But he had an amazing preaching voice. And so he gave the president, he heard the request, gave the president this passage, Isaiah 40, starting in verse 22. It is he, God, who sits upon the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Verse 23, he, meaning God, brings the princess to nothing. He, God, makes the judges of the earth useless. Verse 24, scarcely shall they, this is all figurative language here, they be planted, they meaning these princes, these judges, these rulers, Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when He, God, will also blow on them. I mean, these people are just going to be established, starting to rule. And then God blows on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble, like here now, gone tomorrow. God is sovereign, meaning God is in control of all that happens in this universe. Nothing happens outside His control. He rules over all things, and He rules over all people, and that includes governmental rulers. And Chaplain Lloyd John Ogilvy wanted President Clinton to understand that. It would be extremely helpful if someone would remind our current president of that. He governs as if God doesn't exist. It would seem it never enters his mind that his actions are accountable to God. Some of that might be attributed to his apparent cognitive decline, but that's not an acceptable excuse. He still has enough functioning brain cells left that he should know better. Before the election, there was an organization formed called, quote, Evangelicals for Biden, that's an oxymoron (laughs) evangelicals for biden deceived people naive people in that movement felt mister biden was the more moral candidate the more moderate candidate that his immigration policies were more humane than those of his predecessor yeah right these people felt that being a quote devout catholic as he claimed that he would tighten up access to abortion. These people were fools. Understand something. The president is not a devout Catholic. He is a career politician, and he caters to the godless progressive left. An example, a small example of that. During each 24-hour period, Planned Parenthood aborts almost 1,000 children each 24 hours and on an annual basis Planned Parenthood receives 618 million dollars of our tax monies the president just issued a new tax rule giving them another 60 million dollars and he is now directly funding abortions we are paying for in other countries he is no question the most pro-abortion president of all time And more and more Catholic bishops and parish priests are denouncing him because he has consistently contradicted the moral teachings of Catholicism and historic Christianity. I'm not Catholic. I think we all understand that. But from time to time I just search the YouTube and I've heard of late some recent Catholic priests, parish priests, homilies. I mean, these men are preaching like their hair is on fire, just excoriating the president and his compromise. So these directors from this organization called Evangelicals for Biden are now extremely upset at what's happening. One of them is Sheila Joyner from Texas. She claims to be a conservative pro-life Christian. Is there another kind? Well, apparently there is. Reverend Raphael Warnock pastors Martin Luther King Jr.'s former congregation, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. He was also elected to the U.S. Senate just months ago. During his campaign, he publicly announced that he was a pro-choice pastor a pro-abortion pastor and Christian, and said he would fight to maintain, quote, reproductive justice. Reproductive justice apparently equals aborting children in the womb. I appreciated the response from, to that asinine statement from uh, a man I admire, Hall of Fame coach, Tony Dungy. Coach said, Reverend Warnock might be a pastor. My question would be, Is he a Christian? Yes, coach, that is the better question. And the appropriate answer to that question is, No, he is not. A professing Christian that isn't pro-life either has the IQ of a rock or is completely uneducated on this subject and is self-deceived or is just a pretend Christian. After Reverend Warnock's recent Easter comments on the resurrection, Google them, I would submit that he has renounced the historic Christian faith and is a counterfeit Christian. Jesus would call him a wolf in sheep's clothing. So Sheila Joyner, as a conservative pro-life Christian, she admits, as a member of the Evangelicals for Biden movement, just wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal where she admitted, quote, I am beginning to feel like I was duped, duh, what do you think? Since we're on the subject, three months ago, the National Sanctity of Life Sunday in January, uh, we had a representative from Life Choices, we support them on a monthly basis. And each January, we have someone from there come and present to us what that organization does in convincing women to continue their pregnancies and not to abort the child. And she had these baby bottles. Remember these? And she challenged us to take these bottles home and fill them with change and or paper money and then return them uh, so we can donate the proceeds to Life Choices. And we have done that. In 2020... As a congregation, we donated through these bottles a total of $1,373.52. The most we'd ever donated. In 2021, we just donated a total of $2,225.38. Amen? But something special was in one of those bottles. We don't know where it originated. Uh, It was a slip of paper like this. There was no name attached. But it said, this note, a six-year-old gave her chore money and leftover birthday money to save the babies. People, do you understand that means a six year old first grader has more sense than a sitting U.S. Senator from Georgia that calls himself a Reverend? God pity us! I digress. At the end of those 84 months of judgment, Nebuchadnezzar had learned his lesson. He substituted humility for his hubris. And he published that exchange in a public statement. Notice verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, God, the Jewish God, Yahweh all of whose works are true and his ways justice. And this next part, he announces, he now understood from personal experience through those 84 months of insanity. He said, and those who walk in pride, he, God, is able to put down. Nebuchadnezzar had been proud times a thousand. God judged that pride and caused Nebuchadnezzar's appearance to become repulsive. He's probably on all fours on the ground. He ate grass in the fields as an animal would. He was covered in dirt. He had long tangled hair and claw-like fingernails and toenails. Some believe he was caged as an animal would be caged in a zoo. Caged just as that tree stump in that dream was encased and caged inside that metal band. And then just as quick as he went insane, his sanity was restored. He came out of that mental illness a different man. He had been humbled. He had been humiliated. And now he would be exalted. He was exalted because his throne was restored to him with greater power than he ever had before. But this time, he acknowledged where that power had come from. It's incredible to me that after seven years, his kingdom was still secure. No one sat on his throne during that time. No ambitious noble from the inside had attempted to succeed Nebuchadnezzar's throne. No foreign power had invaded Babylonia and confiscated Nebuchadnezzar's throne. There had been no insurrection. There had been no coup to depose him that's because theologians believe God used Daniel to hold Babylonian together until the end of the 84 months and Nebuchadnezzar could be restored this is the last thing verse 37 we read about Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible but I believe his sincere trust in God his new humility his turning from sin resulted in his salvation and I believe, I am convinced, we will meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Amen. One of the giants of the faith died just this past month. Louis Palau was an international evangelist. and He just died from cancer at age 86. He was born in Argentina and moved to Portland in his mid-20s to attend graduate school at Multnomah University. He started as a translator for Billy Graham in some of his crusades where there were Hispanic people present. And then in 1970, Dr. Graham's organization fronted him some money to start his own evangelistic association. He held large evangelistic crusades most often in foreign countries, some of them here, most often though, foreign. He was known as the Billy Graham of South America. In those crusades and evangelistic festivals, he preached face-to-face, not counting radio and television, he preached face-to-face to more than 25 million people in 70 countries. I heard him preach once in Dallas. He was also an author, and in his book entitled High Definition Life, he shared an interesting account of a simple, humble pastor from Paraguay. Evangelist Palau said, I know a gentleman in Paraguay who will never be famous, but he has forever earned my respect. He volunteered some time ago to help out in the counseling center of one of our missions. We train local congregations to counsel the hundreds of people who come to us seeking help for their marriages, families, and other personal problems. Even though this man was a pastor, He was very poor. Uh, His appearance was unkempt, and he didn't read well. He sat in class all day during those training sessions, listening as his 12-year-old nephew took notes for him. An exam followed all of those sessions and training, and once again, the child wrote the answers for the pastor. That worried our director of counseling. But when he read the man's answers, he was impressed. He found them to be excellent. It was apparent he fully understood the material. A local church let us use its facility as a counseling center. And about 70, 70 counselors staffed the place. That's amazing. One day, all 70 counselors were busy with counselees. And this humble brother, this simple pastor, sat there, waiting his turn, wanting to help someone in walked a well-dressed man we soon learned he was a medical doctor he said to the secretary I need to talk to someone I have a serious problem I have a problem with my marriage we're about to be divorced I hear on television that you give counseling here is there someone I can speak to immediately after overhearing that conversation this humble brother jumped up and said to the doctor I can help you I can help you An hour later, this illiterate pastor emerged, arm in arm with the doctor. Our director of counseling, Evangelist Palau said, caught sight of them together and said, Doctor, is there anything I can do for you? I'm available if you need me. The doctor replied, No, no, thank you, thank you. This gentleman has just helped me very well. I know what I must do when I get home. I just said a prayer and opened my heart to Jesus Christ. He then hugged his poor pastor and left. The next day the center was jammed once more. All the counselors were tied up. And there sat this pastor waiting for another opportunity to counsel. That same doctor returned, and this time with two of his colleagues. Doctor, can I help you? The counselor director said. I'd be happy to talk to you. Please, can I help? A doctor replied, no, thank you very much, thank you, but he pointed to this pastor and said, this brother here helped me to receive Christ yesterday. My two friends want to receive Christ too, and I want them to talk only to him. So these three professionals headed into a classroom led by this simple pastor, and this man led the other two doctors to Jesus. The next day, all three physicians showed up with a fourth doctor, all of them had serious marriage problems. I guess that's common among doctors. And knew one another from the country club. They insisted on talking to only one person. Guess who? That poor, simple pastor with a scraggly beard and rumpled clothes. And he did what 96% of Christians have never done. And he led that fourth doctor to Christ. Christ. It was soon after that, those four doctors got together with their mates and threw a big party to celebrate their Christian experience. And who did those men invite to join them at that celebration? Louis Palau said, was it the evangelist whose name appeared on advertisement posters all over town? He said, no, they didn't even know me. Was it our counseling director, the head of that organization? No. No. Those four men invited that simple, humble pastor and his nephew. Those professional men all became dedicated followers of Jesus Christ, active in a local church, and their families were restored, thanks in a large part to a poor, humble, illiterate pastor. Evangelist Palau said, He'll never be famous. Most people will never know his name, but he earned my deepest sincerest and forever respect why because pride hubris results in humiliation and shame and embarrassment but humbling oneself results in exaltation advancement promotion and esteem i want us to stand to our feet would we do that everyone standing please We're going to conclude our service in singing what I believe, if he were here, would be Nebuchadnezzar's theme song. We're going to sing that famous hymn, How Great Thou Art. Before we do though, I, uh, I want my brother Stephen to come here uh, to the platform. I'm going to have him lead us in prayer, uh, something we always do at the conclusion of a message uh... since we moved here almost nine years ago this summer uh... Stephen's never been here this is his first time most of you have never seen him before uh... he lives on the west coast he lives on the coast just north of santa barbara and uh... he doesn't he doesn't get out much i have to be honest and so we're shocked he's here but i think there's a slight something going on where maybe he's thinking maybe it's time to move closer to family or get out of this craziness in california i'm not sure now i'm the oldest of five children he's next to me, two years younger, I have to be honest, he doesn't look like his siblings, he doesn't act like his siblings, in fact, most most people, you have to be careful around him, most people think there was a mix-up at the hospital, and my mom brought home the wrong kid, maybe, I don't know, anyway, anyway, he's a writer, his master's degree is in communications from the University of Kansas, so technically he's a Jayhawk, but uh, he's a professional writer, radio television film magazines trade journals marketing advertisement all that stuff he's won a Clio award if you're familiar with that he's won a tele-award i said he's a professional writer and he's always he asked me how long he's going i said well i'm working on a sermon he always is offering to help write my sermons and and he's just he does and and i'm going steve i'm fine i'm cool i can do this but he said look i can help i do this i can write sermons and uh I admit, his IQ is probably 20 points north of mine, but I do not want him writing my sermons. He would add new meaning to the word sabotage. Trust me, okay? <laughs> All right. Anyway, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to have him close in prayer, and then we're going to go out after a few stanzas and stand at the back. I want you to meet him. Don't tie him up because a lot of people here, but just meet him and tell him, move to Nevada. Just tell him that, okay? <laughs> tell him you'll never regret it, and, uh, and I don't think he will. So Stephen, would you, uh, would you please uh, say a word? And, Close in prayer.
1: Yeah, it is is great to be here, and I've enjoyed my time here. It's beautiful. And uh, while I enjoy the climate in California, the political climate, maybe not so much, Um, the one thing I did notice after spending several days with my brother and his family, something about the air here or something causes your clothing to shrink. (laughs) So if you'd fix that, I'd be here in an instant. Anyway. I may not have met all of you, but I know you by reputation uh, when I talk to my brother. I often ask, how's the church? And So he tells me, and I've heard good things, so I want to thank God for you now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this day you've made and for the opportunity to rejoice and be glad in it here in this place with these people. Uh, I think that you give him the opportunity to come here, faithfully attend. Stir each other up for love and good works and encourage one another and I ask that you prosper them in all things. Um, That um, when the time comes, whether I meet them again uh, in heaven or on earth, we continue to love one another and glorify your name in Christ's name.